Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Peter H. Gregory. Based in the U.S., Peter is the author of many technical books and a cybersecurity leader, leader, board, board advisor, and mentor, and senior director of, for cyber governance, risk management, and compliance at GCI Communications. You can find him on LinkedIn and check out his website at peterhgregory.wordpress.com and read his articles on Forbes, where he's a member of the Forbes Technology Council. In this interview, we're going to talk about Peter's background and career, professional interests, uh, some of his books, I suppose. And at the end, we're going to actually talk a, quite a bit about sort of, you know, the publishing industry and book writing and AI and things like that. So thank you very much, Peter, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Len, thank you so much for uh, having me here. One of the things I always like to do when I start these interviews is ask people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way into the career that you had. Absolutely. Uh, born in New York City, but only there for a few months. Uh, grew up in Northern California near San Francisco, then Lake Tahoe for junior high and high school. Uh, Reno, Nevada, where I went to college and worked another 10 years. Uh, I majored in electrical engineering uh, and found computer programming to be fascinating. So that really launched me into a 40 plus year um, uh, IT career, essentially, uh, starting in with programming and software engineering, and then later network engineering, engineering, security engineering, being a DBA and, and other roles. I've worn just about every hat in IT there is. Uh, about 23, 24 years ago, I pivoted into cybersecurity while still at ATT Wireless. And I've, I've just enjoyed that uh, profession so much that I'm still doing it today and loving it. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story. Actually, one, one thing we were um, corresponding about briefly uh, before uh, we started the interview, um, just, just last night when I sort of reached out to you on LinkedIn, you're like, I've been on LinkedIn for like, you know, 20, 20 years or something like that. And um, I noticed I, I went all the way down your experience sort of tree. Uh, you were a child actor briefly. I was briefly. Uh, I did some television commercials, uh, no speaking part, just kind of being there in the scene uh, for some uh, television commercials for Macy's that aired during the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, uh, that year. Yeah, that's that's just that's, it's just so interesting. And then, but you did you decided not to go that that route. You went the sort of electrical engineering route and things like that in in college. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, in between the two, uh, I was an electronics hobbyist through junior high and high school. I bought lots of those Heath kit kits, many of which I still have, still run just like they did before. And uh, um, and I thought I wanted to go into electronics. But then uh, in my double E curriculum, there were these programming courses in Fortran and other languages. And I was so smitten. And that was where my passion was. And and, and my career just stayed on that path from then till now. That's really fascinating. Uh, one of the um, uh, things that comes up often on this podcast is people's first experience with, because so many of our, our authors are, um, uh, and, and so many people in our audience are programmers, is their first experience with a computer. And so was your first experience with a computer at school? Yes, in, in college, actually. Uh, the high school I went to was very small, and they were just starting to, Better high schools were starting to get, you know, teletype machines that would have been connected to uh, a nearby university where students could tinker with, you know, languages like BASIC and Fortran and 
things like that. So it was it was very early days, uh, mid seventies. Uh, so I grew up analog, and the first computers I worked with uh, were in my freshman level uh, beginning programming classes in Fortran. Right. So you're getting access at university to probably a lab or something like that. Um, yes. Uh, and then something else that was just so good for my career, uh, I got student employment being one of the computer operators at the university's uh, supercomputer, a CDC 6400, which at that time was uh, a very state-of-the-art machine. Uh, and I had part-time work there for a couple of years, and that's where I learned computer operations and a lot of other processes that are used uh, to this day. One one question that um, often comes up on the podcast as well is, uh, in addition to a person's first experience with you know, sort of computers and technology, is if you were starting out now in 2023 with the intention of having a career in IT, would you go to university and get a get a college degree in sort of computer science or something like that, or would you follow a more independent route? But what I mean, it's a completely hypothetical. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, I guess it would depend on on where my career aspirations were. If I wanted to rise through the ranks in information technology, uh, you know, IT management in a company, if I wanted to someday be the leader there, like the CIO, CTO, a college degree is still pretty essential for those senior roles. Uh, However, for roles from, you know, director on down to individual contributors, a college education is important, but the further along you are in your career, the more that career experience matters and the less that college matters. You know, if you're 23, 24 years old and you're out looking for your first IT jobs, um, college degree is much more helpful than it would be for someone in their 40s or 50s, say, where it's all about the experience uh, at that point. I mean, college is really just sort of, you know, jumpstarting and, and getting you to where you can kind of semi-function in a company and give you a little bit of a head start, you know, and it helps you get in the door and find your way around for the first year or two. But beyond that, it's what you learn on the job that matters and what is going to uh, set your career trajectory, in my opinion. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great answer. Um, one, one um, I guess, specific question I want to ask, too, is that because a lot, quite a few of our listeners, I think, are sort of people who are like, you know, learning about like, you know, you know, computer science and things like that for the first time. They're people who might want to have experience at three-letter agencies, for example, uh, at some point in the future. I'm just looking at your at your shirt. Um uh, for our American listeners, um, if you're looking for a job, let's say in, in law enforcement or in the military or something like that, is getting a computer science degree very important if you want to get into kind of like cybersecurity and stuff like that? Like do government agencies look at that? I'm I'm not all I'm not I'm not altogether familiar with how recruiting and placement in in federal government works today, but I think that for people in more senior positions. I'm kind of thinking that the college degree is still going to help people get into into higher positions, but that's more of opinion versus experience. 
Yeah, no, th- thanks very much for that. It's, 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 uh, that's actually well, something a lot of people that I've asked about that, like they're, when they're recruiters themselves, they'll often say, I don't care. Uh, but they'll say, but if you're trying to get into Google, um, you know, actually having a college degree is often really important or like, you know, a, a, a big, a big bureau- bureaucratized organization and stuff like that, sort of things like that credit, basically credentials can become more and more kind of important kind of, you know, things that, that, that you kind of need just to get, get through, uh, but not necessary. Sure. Well, in, in IT organizations, they, they purposely or not purposely sometimes have kind of a white collar, blue collar, um, culture say, and you know, the white collar ones being the, the people with more experience, more education, the blue collar people are the ones with less education and they tend to have kind of the the hands-on tech jobs like you know the service desk help desk um the 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 lower level jobs and certainly people can rise through the ranks of those kinds of origins really help people get the broad range of experience from doing simple things over and over and dealing with frustrated users which hopefully builds people skills and character. Uh, but then the the people with more credentials or, or more education are, are a little bit more likely to be considered for those very senior leadership positions. Um, and uh, at a certain point, as, as you've mentioned, I think earlier, you made a you made a transition in your own career into cybersecurity. How did that happen? The way it happened is like this. Uh, I was working in in a then secret Skunk Works uh, project at AT&T Wireless uh, that was just codenamed Project Angel. And in that area, our senior management was very concerned about cybersecurity. And to be specific, they were concerned about cyber espionage or industrial espionage, that, that there could be nation states or other companies spying on us to see what we were doing and to perhaps uh, acquire some of our intellectual property. So uh, being the IT manager there and responsible for all IT infrastructure from desktop to server and internet and networks and and all the other pieces, uh, cybersecurity fell on my shoulders. Uh, And so I had to do uh, things that were fairly advanced at that time, uh, fairly ordinary today. Uh, And I I found that I I was good at it. I enjoyed it, uh, and partway through that, uh, the entire company, AT&T Wireless, uh, uh, commissioned a rather large, extensive pen test on the whole business. Um, and this was in the kind of early to late 90s, uh, when system-level security and firewalls were still quite new, and often just you know nothing was done there. Um, I had done my homework. I didn't know the pen test was coming, but my part of the business came out almost completely squeaky clean. So people in the rest of the business whose systems had numerous vulnerabilities and configuration problems from a security perspective, they began to come to me because apparently I knew things they didn't, or so they thought, uh, because my part of the business fared really well in that pen test. So Overnight, I became the security expert in in the company, but I didn't really know any more than anybody else. I didn't think I just I saw what was important and I applied it. 
That's um, really fascinating. So for, for people who are listening who might not know, a pen pen test is a penetration penetration test. Um, yes. Uh, a simulation of, of a hacker's attack of an organization, but it's it's friendly fire that won't actually steal the data or or cause harm, but it simulates the kinds of intrusions that a real hacker would do. I, I have to bring this up. The um the the pilot for Magnum PI, the original series, if anyone knows that, is is features Magnum doing a penetration test on the uh, compound in Hawaii. Um, oh, he's trying right. he's trying to break into the house or break into a car or something like that, and the dogs catch up with him and stuff like that. But anyway, it's super. This is so interesting. So like the idea that basically there's this company AT and T that has hired people basically to do a penetration test, but the employees themselves at the company, like you, don't know that it's coming. So you've just got this, from your perspective, it's just this out of the blue, you you you, you performed spectacularly well because you'd thought about some things in advance, but you hadn't been asked necessarily to think about them. Right. No, I just, I thought, well, I'm connected to the internet. I need to be secure. I need, mm-hmm. I need to be patching my systems. I need to get a firewall and configure that Properly and 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 knowledge about this was was common if you know where to look for it. Uh, I mean, the web wasn't uh, well. No, the web did in, in, in exist, but it was new, and there was not a lot of information on it yet. But there were still good there were good books in print uh, on the topic uh, that helped me understand how to harden systems, how to harden networks, because I was told that that was important. So that's what I did. Um, do you prefer red team or blue team kind of work? Well, I might say none of the above. I appreciate both because where I sit in cybersecurity is I'm in kind of the risk and policy and controls and governance side of it, where what I do is I, my work through myself and my teams, we create the ground rules through which red teams and blue teams operate and th- and how IT itself operates. Oh, that's really fascinating. So yeah, again, for, for people listening, you know, red team and blue team refers to the sort of like the people who sort of do the simulated attacks and the people who do this, as it were, simulated defenses kind of things. But what you're, what you're talking about is operating at that, that the higher level where the kind of the organization of that kind of activity is taking place. Um, and it's it's so interesting that sort of risk and governance work at that level like that's that kind of level has existed in corporations and you know you know government agencies for a long time but it was like during your career that the kind of cyber part of it became a thing uh indeed yes uh, the the practices of risk management have you know go back decades and decades and and then in technology they still go back 40 or 50 years but they were mainly limited to top secret defense installations and higher levels of government and and those parts of government where where more sensitive things were were going on like uh, you know statecraft and espionage and, and things like that um cybersecurity began to be a thing in private industry in the 90s and then 2000s when organizations were connecting themselves to the internet and finding out that Hey, we need to protect ourselves because these things keep going wrong when we don't do a very good job of that. And things, uh, just to take the opportunity to talk to an expert about it, you know, things keep going wrong to this day, right? I mean, you know, we, you know, you can basically, basically any day you can go on some sort of news site and see like, oh no, 
you know, like what was it just yesterday with, I think I saw an article about how like every voter in the UK had their like data exposed or something like that. Um, how is it that to this day, uh, from if, if you were if sort of if you were sitting around the pub table, as I'm sure you've been asked before, like how is it that to this day you guys can't protect uh, all our data from being exposed like that? Let's see. Let's let's find a, a gentle way to answer that. Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. What I would say is this: that uh, cybersecurity in general functions as kind of QA for the IT department um, in part uh, and to ensure that processes and systems and networks are secure by design uh, so that they can withstand attacks and intrusions and and other shenanigans uh, by you know insiders or outsiders um, I've said many times that in cybersecurity, we make a really good living because people like to click on stuff. And that's that's still true to a great extent. Um, what exacerbates a lot of this is the asymmetric nature of cyber warfare. And it goes like this, that cyber criminals always are going to have the advantage because they can cook up new ways of attacking organizations. Um, they are always researching and, and cooking up new kinds of malware and even new overall techniques on what malware is or isn't and how, how it might be used in more creative ways. In part, that works because when organizations deploy technology, they're trying to get the functions working. The protective parts of it, cybersecurity, is sometimes an afterthought in, in less disciplined uh, organizations. Instead, they just want to make it work and then we'll protect it later. But, you know, that later sometimes never comes. Uh, also, uh, software has flaws and uh, exploitable flaws that, if discovered, could lead to an attacker being able to compromise a system with that software in it. Um, software is so complex and information systems are so complex that anymore we just think of systems as having two kinds of, of security flaws, you know, those we know about and those we don't know about yet. So there's an arms race going on where cyber criminal organizations are researching and, and trying to find new flaws that are not known yet by anyone. And manufacturers of, of these products are, are doing the same thing. Uh, and also other just to kind of, you know, third-party security researchers are also looking for flaws in commercial products because many companies have these bug bounty programs where they will pay independent researchers for responsible disclosures of, of security defects. And sometimes those payouts uh, can be quite large, uh, uh, up into uh, let's see, three, you know, five digits, six digits, even depending on the seriousness of the vulnerability that's found. There have been some very big payouts uh, uh, by companies to researchers who have found 
very serious flaws in their in their systems. Yes, yeah, so yeah, it's, that's so yeah. interesting. I mean, it, it sort of brings up this sort of like the budgetary side of things. So like if you're running if you're running a company, you've got limited resources to spend on things, um, and someone comes to you and says you've got to spend a lot of money on protecting yourself from a hack, and then they go, well, how do I how do I report the value of that investment to anybody? Because it's it's purely it's purely defensive, right? Like there's no, yeah. there's nothing productive that comes from it. You can't say like we made the X more money because we spent this much on cybersecurity. Right, right. the 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 funny thing about this, uh, and I've used an illustration in the past to to show what this means, but cyber risk is not on a company's balance sheet. So. You could have two identical companies operating next door to each other, same same number of staff, same number of customers, same revenue, same expenses. One company is doing a really good job with cybersecurity, and they've got that place you know locked up really tight. They all of their different processes and tools are working very well. The company next door doesn't know, doesn't care, and isn't doing anything. And yet the balance sheets are identical, but the probability of the unprotected company being literally put out of business by a ransomware attack is many times higher than the company that is doing a good job protecting itself. And yet, until such an incident occurs, there's nothing on the surface, uh, at least from a financial perspective, that would tell you that one company is different from the other. Cyber insurance companies, though, are beginning to figure this out. And Mm. as Starting more than 20 years ago, as the uh, insurance companies started getting into cyber insurance, I thought, finally, uh, you know, insurance companies are going to figure out what the real factors are, because that's their business, is to know what are the risk factors that lead to, you know, people dying earlier, living longer, or getting into a car accident or not, or being sued or not being sued. Um, you know, they have actuaries uh, who know how to uh, go through the numbers and figure out what are the risk factors that matter. And if nothing else, cyber insurance companies are being are, are starting to drive the kind of behavior that will actually lower the risk of intrusion and harm. Um, one one question I actually hadn't been planning on asking you, but I'm uh, I'm I'm uh, really looking forward to knowing what the answer is. Is um. Let's say I'm the co-founder of a tech startup or something like that, <laughs> and right, right. I've got a website and I'm doing e-commerce and things like that. How much work are governments doing to protect, is my government doing to protect my business without me even knowing it or or, or doing anything to protect myself? Mm. Well, it's hard to know what's going on in secrecy, but, but my belief is not much. Mm. Uh, Mainly what they are doing is passing laws or developing standards. You know, if when they develop standards, they say, you know, please do these things. Or if they pass laws, then they go, you must do these things. Uh, in various uh, U.S. states and, and many countries have passed privacy laws. Some have passed laws regarding just, you know, straight up cybersecurity. Um, th- there are... In the United States, there are good partnerships between private industry and law enforcement, mainly the FBI, uh, but it's really more of just 
networking and information sharing so that private industry companies can learn how to do a better job of protecting themselves. And they can be more familiar with the FBI and how they can help them if they do have a serious intrusion that really warrants the involvement of the FBI versus uh, a local law enforcement agency like city or county or state. As an outsider, it's just such a fascinating space to think about because uh, like with cybersecurity, I mean, in particular, because like, like, let's say you're a company and you're getting, and you're getting attacked. You don't know if that's a state actor. Maybe you don't know if that's maybe a competitor or something like that. You know, that might be a combination of both and people can get very protective from what I understand, right? Because like, maybe they don't even want to tell law enforcement about what they're doing to protect their company because law enforcement could be a vector for, for, for exposure right? Sure. I mean, you, you can't, you can't take it for granted that if you, if you tell people how you're protecting yourself, that information isn't going to get out. For sure. And, and that's why organizations generally are, are very closed about revealing what their protective measures are. Because if you disclose enough of it, then, you know, for anyone paying attention who, who has, you know, skills and some spare time, you know, you're basically giving them kind of the blueprint for you know how to get into your into your environment if they if they want to, and and in many cases even your own without naming in names even your own government might not might not be your friend. Well, sure. I mean, it it, it depends on what's going on, and uh, there's 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 layers of of concern and 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 layers of 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 activity that can make. Uh, you know, government and industry, uh, you know, cooperate or be more adversarial. Uh, and that tends to change frequently. That's a very diplomatic answer. <laughs> uh, and I think very well said. Um, one thing, I, just to just move on to an, 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 the next part of the interview. So um, you started out in IT, you made this switch to cybersecurity, but you also at a certain point started writing books. Um, particularly technical books about about certifications and exams, and but but also eventually about technical writing as well. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how that happened. How did you find yourself becoming a writer? Well, he, here's how that all started. Uh, uh, back in the early '90s, uh, I was a a systems engineer uh, on Unix systems uh, and doing network engineering and and DBA work uh, at World Vision. Um, in the early 90s, and when we were uh, implementing Informix databases, and so we had some Informix staff uh, on board for a couple of years uh, consulting and helping build and, and get things going. And one of the consultants I worked with, her name was Liz Sudo, and a couple of years after we both parted ways, um, Liz contacted me and said, hey, Peter, I'm writing my first book. And it's a real geeky book. It was called Informix Online Performance Tuning. And she said, would you be a uh, technical subject matter expert and help me on this book? And I said, oh, sure, I'd love to. Uh, and so I did that. And that got me uh, introduced to executives at Prentice Hall Publishing, which also owns Sun Microsystems Press. Um, I enjoyed that work. It paid me a few hundred bucks. And, and I learned some things, too, because I had to read this you know, kind of advanced techniques and so forth. Um, I enjoyed that and uh, I contacted the publisher and I said, hey, you know, this was fun. I hope it was helpful and I'd love to do more of this. 
So over the next five years, uh, I did maybe a dozen or a dozen and a half of other similar work, uh, being a, a technical subject matter expert, uh, reviewing these manuscripts and, and ensuring that the authors were explaining things correctly and in ways that readers could understand and were logical. So I earned a reputation of doing good work there, and I was working with uh, the executive who ran Sun Microsystems Press. Now, intersect that with my working at AT&T Wireless in that Skunk Works project where cybersecurity was important. We were a Sun Solaris shop, and I knew quite a bit about Solaris security, Solaris being the operating system for Sun Microsystems. I wanted to find a book on the topic so I could apply more techniques, but there were no books in print. There was nothing on Solaris security. And then one day I just had this flash at work and I thought, I know the executive who runs this, this imprint label. And I called him up and I said, hey, it's Peter in Seattle. I'm looking for a book on Solaris security and there's nothing out there. But you know what? I think I could write that book. What do you, what do you think about that? And the executive said, hey, Peter, that sounds like a great idea. How about you send me a table of contents and I'll send you a contract? And it was a five-minute phone call, and that resulted in my writing my first book, which was a great seller. And I learned years later that every engineering employee at Sun Microsystems had a copy of that book. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I learned that at a networking dinner uh, at the company Tripwire not seven years ago. So, you know, like 20 years after I wrote that book, I learned how widespread it actually was. That book went well. Uh, Prentice Hall asked me to write a couple more. Uh, the second one being a book with one of the longer titles um, on a certification for Solaris uh uh, system administration. Um, I'm not going to try and name that title because it's too many words, but it was a study guide for the Solaris certification uh, that people, you know, with expertise would want to earn uh, in order to show that they, you know, they know what they're doing in that product, you know, very similar to the MCSEs and others at Microsoft and what other companies have. Uh, so one thing led to another, and so then I had a couple of books printed, uh, published. Uh, I got another book published uh, over in Europe. <clears throat> then uh, one day I got a phone call from someone uh, at the Dummies Publishing Company who said, hey, Peter, we see you've written some books, and we are writing CISSP for Dummies, and we're kind of behind schedule. Our co-author is behind schedule on this, and would you be willing to help and write some chapters? Uh, and so we soon came to an agreement on that, and I was the co-author of that book. And 20 years later, that book is still selling. It's in uh, its seventh edition now, and it's just a perennial bestseller. Uh, and after having done that one, I've written, I couldn't even tell you, maybe 20 other dummies books, uh, some of them being custom pubs, um, others being... Uh, books for IT professionals, and the most recent one that I've written a couple of editions of is Chromebook for Dummies, um, one of my few books uh, written for uh, consumers. That's that's just such a fascinating story. That I guess um, there's lots of things I could ask you about that uh, that that path. Uh, but 
one of them, I guess, would be, is that something that people can do now? Are there, are there like, you know, obviously LeanPub is a self-publishing platform, but like, are there publishing, like, would Prentice Hall still do something like that? Um, they would, and they do. Okay. Uh, the, the publishing industry, uh, of course, there's been a lot of change going on for more than 20 years. I mean, eBooks has, has been very disruptive, but also a great opportunity for publishers. Uh, one of the best things I did in my publishing is about 16, 17 years ago, I hired a literary agent at Waterside Productions. And my my literary agent, uh, whose name is Carol, she has opened so many doors for me. Uh, she has gotten me into other big publishers like McGraw-Hill and Cengage uh, and JB Learning, O'Reilly and others um, that would have been very difficult on my own, even as a published author of several books. Um, so hiring Carol as my agent, uh, she is still my agent today. She still does great work and she finds me more publishing work than, than I can even take on. I, I think I turned down more more offers than I can accept. And for um for any aspiring authors out there listening, uh, well, what do you need to do to get an agent? Well, you... uh, I, it's it for someone who is not published, it's going to be a little bit harder. It would be like someone who wants to be a Hollywood actor. I mean, you can go hire an agent, but if there's if there's no real prospect of any income, then the agent might say, you know, you're just not worth my time because I'm not going to be able to sell you. And agents work on a commission, you know, on 10, 20, 30%, depending on the industry. Um, I pay my agent a, a, a very standard uh, rate that I won't disclose, but it's it's standard. It's not high or low. And it's, it's the best use of my publishing money because, uh, you know, let's just say it's 10%. So what has happened is, you know, with Carol getting me these jobs, I'm you know, making 90% of, of book publishing royalty. And without her, it would be a hundred percent of nothing. So definitely, definitely worth it. Yeah, I know that's, that's really great advice. And that's speaking, speaking of advice, particularly from you, um, there, you've got this great series about how technologists can move from idea to publish book, uh, on Forbes that you've, that you've been publishing. Um, I think there's five, five parts so far. There's five so far, and there's a sixth one that's going to hit at any time, which is a very different perspective. It's what, what being a writer while having your day job, what kind of impact it's going to have in your life potentially. And it parts of the article may sound a little bit like a warning, but writing can take a considerable amount of time and you got to take that time from somewhere. And if you're taking it away from say family or sleep or, or, uh, you know, social time, family time, fitness time, spiritual time. I mean, something's going to suffer, possibly. So it's it's really uh, an article to help someone who wants to write a book to be more informed and to be able to go in with eyes open, understanding that you know there are side effects to writing. Oh, that's that's such a great idea for an article. Um, uh, I'm I'm looking forward to reading that. I mean, it's um writing me of, uh, I forget who it was, but it was a, a sort of very famous um, news talk show host in the States who had an anecdote about how his wife called it uh, 
that room uh, where when he went when he started a new book project and she'd be like now you're going to be in that room uh, and he had to negotiate with his family like he had to be explicit about it like it's going to be like it's I've got one life to live so do all of you and there's going to be we're going to be spending less time with each other because I'm going to be writing a new book yeah it's like it's like getting a second job because that's what it is uh, and one thing I say in that article that'll be out I'm guessing next week but I'm not exactly sure um, is is the 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 fallacy of saying, well, I'll I'll sit on the couch and and I'll be writing on my laptop while you're all like watching TV or, you know, talking or sharing or or whatever. But you know, just because you're physically there doesn't mean you're there. I mean, you're not there, and it would, in some ways, be almost more painful or insulting to your family members because then they would see you every moment not paying attention to them at all. But something else that, from their perspective, doesn't matter a lot. One of the, um, this was a person who wasn't writing technical books, but someone who was writing um, sort of fiction who I interviewed for the podcast once. She had a story about how, you know, she wrote her first book and she wasn't expecting it to go anywhere, but it became a hit. Uh, so then she was like, oh, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and be an author now. And um, she was a single mother and she had a little daughter. And what she would do to, to write was she would she hire a babysitter. She would say goodbye to her, give her daughter a hug and go out the front door. And then she would literally climb in the window to her office in the back of the house uh, to work, to work in her office. Uh, because that way, like, because if her daughter knew that she was in the office, there would be interruptions and, right. and, and her daughter would be anxious or what have you about, you know, when, when can I see mommy next? But if she knew that mommy had left, left the house, <laughs> then, then there was a very different kind of mental game. But these these things that people do to sort of get book book projects done are like very personal. They they definitely are. I mean, unless you're one of the lucky very few whose employers say write this book for us. Of course, mm -hmm. in that case, they probably get all the money and you just get your paycheck. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, how bad is that? Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's okay too. But um, or you could just take a very long time to write a book. Uh, I mean, for a long time, I sacrificed sleep. I still do a little bit. Um, but less than I used to. I don't write on weekends anymore at all, not even mm. five minutes. Mm. Uh, it's just uh, a habit and, uh, you know, knowing that, you know, family is important as it is. Uh, I don't write as many hours a week now as I did in the past. And sometimes I had two or three books all going at once. Um, on that on that topic, actually, so you're the author of a book called The Art of Writing Technical Books, um, uh, and, and so I've got to take the opportunity to ask you, um, you know, for the sake of our audience, uh, if you had like one or two sort of what are the main things that you've learned about like writing technical books that you would that the the, the art of actually doing it uh, that you could tell to other sort of budding technical book authors out there, what would sure. what would you what would you take the opportunity to tell them? What what I would say is that. Writing technical books seems easy at first because if you just pick up another technical book, you look at it, and you say, all I got to do is just type this stuff out and, and take some pictures. But the, the details are vast. And the, if, if I could have told my, if, if the future me could have told the, the prior me when I was starting to write and what advice I would give my younger self, I would say, get a big spreadsheet out and record 
every detail of where every file and image and other pieces of what will become a part of the book. Where mm -hmm. are they? What is their status? Uh, you know, every figure, you know, have you drawn it yet? Have you taken the picture? Have you cropped it and, and processed it? Or if you've got an image from somewhere else and you need to get the rights from it, uh, you know, what are the rights? Who's the contact? Have you written them? Have they written back? Well, what attribution do you have to put in the book? And have they agreed in writing? And is the publisher okay? I mean, for one figure, you can have a lot of little data points there. Um, when you write a book, you you start out with you know one file per chapter, and you send them off for a tech editor, and then that file comes back, and you work on it. You send it out again, and it comes back maybe because another tech editor looked at it. You know, each chapter file will pass it as the author. You write the original rough draft of it, but it will come back through your hands three to six times before the book exists. And, you know, if you've got a 20 chapter book, that's, you know, 20 times six, uh, what is that? A 120 objects. And it's even mm. more complicated for figures because mm. chapter might have lots and lots of figures and figures of different kinds, line arts, photos, screenshots, and maybe more. Uh, keeping so there are hundreds of details to track, and you can't keep it in your head. Email is a terrible record keeping system. Terrible. Um, so I'd say find a way to keep very detailed records. Uh, in my book, The Art of Writing Technical Books, I I provide some examples. Uh, I don't remember if I've got screenshots in there, but I provide a lot of detail on. Here are the things you need to track for each kind of element in your book. And then you've just got to be good at it. Otherwise, you're going to forget something. Um, That's amazingly good advice. <laughs> I've got to say, um, that's that's an incredible thing. To, I mean, because a lot of people, like, they think, they just think, when they think about writing a book, they think about the writing. Uh, and about all the organizing that you, as an, even if you've got a kind of conventional publisher that you're working with, you as the author have a very high amount of organizational work that you have to do and you have to keep track of to make sure that the project succeeds. Indeed, you do. Um, and when I wrote The Art of Writing Technical Books, I initially uh, believed that I would be self-publishing because the page count was kind of below the threshold that would interest traditional publishers. They typically want to see kind of the page count at the lower end of say 250 ish, and in my book is is under 200 pages. And my agent said, "Well, just make it longer." And I said, "No, it's the right size now." <laughs> so, so because of that, I had to do a lot of extra things on my own as well. I had to hire a tech editor and hire a copy editor, and I hired a proofer. Um, you know, publishers provide those things. Traditional publishers provide all of that background work. You know, they provide the illustrators and the artists and all of the different editors and compositors and so forth. But when you're self-publishing or in some hybrid publishing models, you're even taking on some of those things too. Uh, you've just given me the greatest gift a podcast guest can give, which is the perfect segue. Uh, uh, 
one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you uh, today was about uh, AI and how this mm -hmm. is going to have an impact on on authors and stuff like that. And I know you published an article where you you sort of got feedback from some some of your fellow sort sort of Forbes authors about the impact that AI might on have on on writing. And so when you talk about like hiring an editor, hiring a technical editor, hiring all kinds of copy editor and stuff like that, uh, yeah. so you've got all this experience of being very successful in technical book writing, working with publishers and stuff like that, knowing the amount of work that an author has to do, even on their own, even if they're not self-publishing. Very general question, I guess, is just what impact do you think that the current crop of AI services are going to have on people like you and the work that you do? AI, my use of AI will, will make me a better author of, of, first draft uh, copy for books. Um, I've been using a, a tool called Grammarly Pro, which has some AI in it. I've been using that for years. It helps me create better copy. Um, it is a bit of a crutch, but I've noticed that it does make me better because it tends to correct my bad habits, and now I'm beginning to anticipate the mistakes I make, and, and then I correct them in the first draft instead of Grammarly going, uh, 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 you shouldn't have done that. Mm -hmm. uh, when I write articles for organizations like Forbes, um, I'm required to certify that I wrote the copy and that AI did not write it. I have to check the box oh. every time. Um, and I just read an article a couple days ago. I don't remember where I saw it, but um, LinkedIn maybe, but I'm not sure. Uh, that talked about that on Amazon, there are lots of new AI written books that are travel guides and they're all bad. Um, but I haven't read them, but I, I skimmed the article and they were bad because they weren't written from the human perspective. Although, you know, because AI is not really human, it tries to kind of mimic that, but it can only go so far. Um, but the books had errors, um, missing information, descriptions that just really weren't great, and and so forth. Um, so we were seeing, you know, early examples of of people who maybe were sloppy or not very well versed in AI, uh, or who didn't understand the principles of AI. You know, the first of which is check every fact that a large language model. AI is telling you, don't just believe it as truth. You've got to check it out. I mean, there was a case a few weeks ago uh, where a lawyer, a lawyer was was either disbarred or sanctioned or fined or something because in in their written arguments they were citing legal cases that actually did not exist because they they had AI write part of their brief. Um, yeah, no. So I, I read that article. That's uh, yeah, yeah, I read an article about that. That I think it was a lawyer in New York who got sort of a real heavy finger wag from a judge uh, because they misunderstood what what the sort of like ChatGPT was doing. Right, ChatGPT isn't isn't looking at sources to be factually correct. It's looking at its sources to sort of figure out what letter to print next in its in its result. Right. That's what it's doing. Um, it really is. It just it's mimicking, and it's just playing back what it's been told. Mm -hmm. 
How how long has it been that you've actually had to, if you don't mind my asking, that you've had to click that button saying it's me and not not an AI when you're submitting? Uh, for as long as I've been writing for Forbes, which is all of this year and I think a little bit of last year. Ah, oh, that's okay. That's that's really interesting uh, from a very very sort of practical kind of working kind of writer perspective to know. Um, yeah, uh, it's um, it's 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 something that like obviously like it's sort of like you know the, the publishing world is sort of really sort of grappling with, and that's like you know not just books but also articles and news and things like that. Um, uh, you know how how transparent should you be? How transparent do people want you to be um, about about this kind of thing? Um, sure. Uh, and, uh, just such, such a sort of like, and like, you know, um, we, we just don't know what it's going to be like, right. You know, like a sort of, you know, there's, there's people who, I think, I think this might be an example that I found in something you wrote, but like, you know, there's that there's people who don't want GMO kind of food, right. And they might want a label saying this is like created by a person, not by an AI or something like that. And there might, there probably will be a whole market for things like that. But the, the, um, when you bring up sort of, you know, people using AI to write travel books, for example, I mean, one of the one of the interesting, I guess, this sort of uh, meshes with talk about cybersecurity. But whenever there's a new technology, the bad guys are out there trying to exploit it, and they've been at it for a long time on like things like on Amazon, for example, um, mm -hmm. trying to get sort of more more sort of book purchases to sort of get a bigger cut of the sort of pie from KDP, the sort of not not KDP but KDP Unlimited, like the kind of author pool and stuff like that um and it's just a super fascinating time uh for authors but I, the thing is like this, this basically in my in my sort of like experience the smarter people get the more they are they're straightforward about how like it's going to be a, ai is just a tool that all authors are going to be using uh going forward for sure and that might have been me writing about gmo because that's that's and one analogy that i've used a few times i could for fiction books i i could foresee in the near future where you might see something on the front or back cover of a novel that says that this book is ai free in other words written mm. by humans but does that really make it better i'm i'm not sure um back to the travel guides generally i would think that if you were going to write a travel guide to really write one that's good you got to go visit the places. You got to tell the stories. And how can you do that if you don't go? And how can you do that if you didn't even write it, but if you had AI write it? I mean, where are the stories going to come from? I, I suppose that it could just make them up or you could stitch things together and concoct fictional stories that you might represent as your own. But then again, there's the the other problem of where we're copyright law is is not settled yet on you know if ai if you use ai to write significant passages of your book then is it really yours uh, you know who owns that content i mean does the owner of the large language model own the content that comes out of it um, certainly they own the content that goes into it uh, or they can use it so Oh yeah, no, that's super interesting. I mean, for, first of all, I think the, from the copyright perspective and stuff like that, they actually often like. I mean, one of the big controversies is that they often don't own the stuff that goes into. They they, they sort of scrape the web basically, um, right? And and so there's a lot of people who are saying like, well, if my if my or like including Google Books and stuff like that, right? So it's like if my work 
has gone into is, is an input to your large language model, then I should be compensated for the output. And one of the sort of like semi jokes that I have when I talk to people about that, who ask me like, how is this going to affect, you know, sort of book publishing copyright and stuff like that? It's like, well, how do you know that you're basically it could be, if you're the worst writer in the world, you're, you might be providing the greatest value to these large language models uh, because they know from reading your books what not to write. So should, should, should the person who's getting compensated be the worst writers, not the best writers? And this is like, it's actually sort of serious question if you're actually coming at it from a regulatory perspective, like who should be compensated for the input? It all, I mean, and then of course that there are all of these things are basically black boxes, even to the people who create them. Um, right. So the thing yeah. with that argument though, is if, if, if someone is a bad writer and they, and they give that content to the AI, what if the AI thinks it's good? Well, and then they use that as a good example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's no. all kinds of shenanigans that, that can happen. And, you know, like you said, you know, the makers can't fully explain it because, you know, learning and 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 the algorithms there, you know, some of it is is sort of beyond human reach in terms of comprehending exactly why did the AI say that instead of this? You know, it's not knowable. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um uh and uh and that's you know, just something that we're all we're all sort of like grappling with and excited by, right? I mean, you know, Chat GPT is one of the most successful kind of apps ever all of a sudden because there's people are interested in it. They, you know, they're interested in, in what they can get from it. I mean, I had a, I have a friend whose sister, you know, sort of wanted to get into Airbnb and sort of like permanently renting out their basement. And mm. she used ChatGPT to make the contract. Uh, and it, it worked. Yeah. Well, but you know, do you have to have a, should you have a real lawyer check it over though, to make sure it's complete and, and fair and, and tailored to exactly what you need. Yes, you probably should. <laughs> um, it's it's a super fascinating time uh, to be to be uh, writing and interested in writing and things like that. And yeah, I'll definitely point people to your to your article um, about AI and also to your article about your your series of articles about technical writing and stuff like that. Oh right, uh, and the yeah. one on AI was a was a collaboration, uh, and I believe that's in Computer Weekly um, from a couple of weeks ago. If that's the one you're... Uh, the one, uh, I've got one right here on Forbes, seven ways I, AI will impact authors in the publishing industry. Oh, but it might have been... Might have okay. Been, these things that, can appear in more than one right. place. For sure. That one, yes, that I did do. And, and there were several contributors who are also Forbes Technology Council members. Uh, there's another one that was released more week, more recently on Computer Weekly, and that was a collaboration uh, between uh, myself, uh, and an associate uh, in Hamburg, Germany. Ah, I've got it right here. Okay, perfect. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. I'll put that uh, a link to that in the description of the video and everything like that. Well, Peter, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day uh, to talk to me and to talk to our audience about about all of this. It's super fascinating, and I definitely know that our audience is going to really like to hear your very practical advice um, about about writing books uh, and in particular technical books. Uh, my pleasure, Len. Uh, thanks for having me on today. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.